If you've ever had whiplash, you know how painful it can be. So on this episode of the Concast, we're going to talk about it. Welcome to the Concast, a podcast where we discuss all things health, wellness, and injuries in an attempt to better understand the human body. This is episode number 76, and today I thought we would talk about whiplash, a very, very common injury that we see in the musculoskeletal healthcare or medicine world as well as uh, something that plagues a lot of people as a result of suffering whiplash. So I thought it would be a good episode to maybe unpack whiplash a little bit and discuss how I see it in the clinic, and hopefully you'll find it beneficial. So before we get into the meat and potatoes of this injury, what exactly is whiplash? And If you look at the literature, the definitions of whiplash are pretty general. A whiplash-associated disorder, or a WAD disorder, W-A-D as it's often referred to in our industry, is a term that's given to a collection of symptoms affecting the neck that are often triggered by an accident with some type of acceleration, deceleration mechanism of injury. This typically is discussed around motor vehicle accidents or car accidents much of the time. So motor vehicle accidents at large worldwide would be one of the largest, if not the largest source of whiplash associated disorder or injury. Now, while car accident is a large source, it certainly does not mean that you have to be in a car accident to suffer from whiplash you can suffer from whiplash in any mechanism that causes acceleration, deceleration of the neck or this sort of whipping force of the neck. This can happen in something as innocuous or perceivably innocuous or benign as a slip and fall. We often see this on the ice. So someone is walking on the ice and they slip and fall and hit their bum on the ice, but they don't hit their head this will still cause the neck to move back and forward or side to side very aggressively, which can cause whiplash injury. And we also see this with direct hits to the head. So in sports like hockey, football, boxing, mixed martial arts, soccer, where the head can get hit, that can also cause quite a substantial movement of the the head or neck. And even if that movement isn't at the time perceivably substantial, it could still cause a whiplash-based injury. Now, when we look at the recovery statistics for whiplash, depending upon the research that you read, some studies will say it's as low as 13%. Other studies will say it's upwards of 65%. I think one of the pitfalls of these studies is a whiplash injury in general can be so broad in terms of the categorization of them. We'll talk about what those categories are in a moment, but it's really hard to say what full resolution looks like when the spectrum of the injuries are so broad. 
I would imagine and venture to guess that if we were able to separate these injuries out into kind of a mild, moderate, or severe category, that the mild or more mild cases would, generally speaking, have better prognosis than the more substantial injuries. And I think this is true for a lot of the musculoskeletal injuries that we see. However, we can't say this in all cases, certainly. So the degree of the injury depends. We also know that whiplash injuries can happen at really, really low rates of speed and G-forces in and around 2 to 4 Gs can cause a whiplash injury. And we know that the collection of symptoms that an individual will experience are highly variable and dependent upon the circumstances surrounding the injury, as well as the overall health profile of the individual, as well as their injury history. Do they have any prior whiplash injuries? Do they have any prior head injuries, etc.? So when we're in school, we learn about classifying these injuries, and one of the major tools or classification systems that are used something called the Quebec Task Force classification system that was developed in 1995. And it really breaks down whiplash injuries into four major categories, or I guess five major categories ranging from zero to four. So zero is there are no complaints. So it doesn't mean that there isn't a mechanism of injury. So there might be a motor vehicle accident, but there aren't really any complaints at all by the, the patient as well as generally there won't be any physical exam findings. So this would be a WAD zero. We then go from WAD one through to WAD four. Um, WAD one is neck stiffness and tenderness only. So there aren't really any gross musculoskeletal findings or specific musculoskeletal findings. In a WAD one, the, the patient that suffered the injury will have full range of motion. In a WAD two, there are more distinct, maybe musculoskeletal signs as they're defined by the Quebec Task Force, which might include things like point tenderness in an area of the neck or a decreased range of motion. This might happen in a specific range, for example, flexion of the neck when I bring my chin down to my chest, or it might happen globally. So all of the ranges of motion of the neck are restricted in some way, and that is a WAD 2. Now, a WAD 3, there's discussion around neurological signs and symptoms. And as we know, neurological signs and symptoms are highly variable. This might range from something like a bit of numbness and tingling on the outside of the elbow to something substantial like muscle weakness, paralysis, full sensory deficits, loss or reduction of deep tendon reflexes, uh, paresis, which is excessive weakness of a limb, or even paralysis in the case of a more substantial neurological injury. So really, the difference between a WAD 2 and a WAD 3 is trying to distinguish whether the nervous system at large has been injured versus just the soft tissue excluding the nerves, which is always a little bit difficult to do because as we know now, the nervous system's integrated into all injuries, particularly in cases of uh, whiplash injury, peripheral sensitization, and we'll talk about central sensitization in these in these circumstances in a moment. And then really the, the final stage of WAD injury is whether or not there is a presence of a fracture or a dislocation. Now, in the context of a WAD 4, there may very well also be 
neurological signs. And certainly if you have a fracture or dislocation, you're also going to have uh, musculoskeletal signs as well. So while we try and talk about these in separate boxes, often there will be an overlap of all of these tissues that are injured. So really, when we talk about the tissues, specific tissues that are injured in any type of whiplash injury, it's highly variable and it can really be anything around the neck. We often do discuss tissues at the front of the neck in a motor vehicle accident. Often the head goes forward and then gets whipped backwards and that's why we do discuss tissues at the front of the neck a lot. This can include things like the muscles on the front of the neck, the sternocleidomastoid, the scalenes and many more, the ligaments along the front of the neck ligaments like the anterior longitudinal ligament. It can uh, also include the nerves of the neck, things like the brachial plexus um, or peripheral nerves that are branching off of the brachial plexus, which is a large nerve bundle that's moving through the front of the neck to feed the arms. We could injure even the joints and, and bones of the neck. So it is very, very variable in what specific tissues might be injured. One of the things that I would like to see is more of an updated, and I, I know that these exist in terms of looking at neck pain at large and, and chronic or persistent neck pain, talking about um, best evidence for the guidelines for treatment of neck pain from a multifactorial approach. I would like to see whiplash injuries specifically talked more from this approach and maybe a discussion around the Quebec Task Force classification is very biomechanical, soft tissue oriented in nature. It doesn't talk about things like central sensitization or sensitization of the brain and the spinal cord. It doesn't necessarily address things like the persistent phase of the injury. And we characterize that as three months or beyond with no expected prognosis or no recent improvements. So if we were able to integrate the specific WAD classification with other methods, management of neck pain in the same conversation, I think that would be valuable. And I think, uh, like I said previously, that's starting to happen in just the context of neck pain. However, in terms of specific mechanisms like whiplash injuries, I do think that conversation has to happen uh, as well. One of the big questions that we get and we see and patients will often ask, do I need an x-ray following a whiplash injury or a car accident and or an MRI or some other type of image? And there is something called the Canadian C-spine rules, which is out of the University of Ottawa, which discusses circumstances where individuals in the emergency room warrant an x-ray versus unwarranting an x-ray. And this is based on the examination of the literature at large and, and looking at different circumstances where we might need to, to take an x-ray to ensure for patient safety. So what might warrant an x-ray? And there are four things in this category. And it certainly doesn't mean that if one of these things is present that you're automatically going to be given an x-ray. And this isn't necessarily just related to motor vehicle accident in general. This is just neck injury. So greater than 65 years of age with a dangerous mechanism, so motor vehicle accident or car accident being one of them, axial load being the other, so let's say you're on a trampoline and you fall on the top of your head or you fall in general and hit the top of your head on the ground or on a wall, paresthesia in the extremities, 
Paresthesia is numbness and tingling, so any numbness and tingling following typically a dangerous mechanism would warrant an x-ray. However, numbness and tingling doesn't necessarily warrant an x-ray in and of itself, particularly if there hasn't been an acute mechanism of injury. So let's just say, for example, I wake up one day and my thumb's a little bit numb. That doesn't necessarily warrant an x-ray. However, if I've just been in a motor vehicle accident at a high rate of speed and my arm is numb, then that would warrant an x-ray. Another one is unable to rotate the neck 45 degrees or something known as rust sign. Rust sign is when individuals hold their head up as if they're wearing a neck collar. So they'll place the pads of their thumbs underneath their jaw to hold the head up. And this may in fact also warrant an x-ray. What are things that unwarrant an x-ray? Simple motor vehicle accident. And again, this is highly variable and depends on the individual that's in the vehicle and their health profile, as well as all the circumstances surrounding it. If they are sitting in the emergency department, if they're able to walk following an injury, and we do know that there are still circumstances where people can have a cervical spine injury and be walking, if there's a delayed onset of the neck pain, and if there's no midline tenderness in the neck, and what that means is if I palpate or touch or the examiner palpates or touch the spinous processes, which are the bony parts of the back of the neck, there isn't any direct tenderness. So again, are there certainly circumstances where there will be exceptions to this rule? Certainly. However, at large for the majority of the population, this is how emergency room physicians will decide whether or not a patient warrants some type of further examination through an image. The other thing that's really, really important with any potential whiplash injury is the ruling out of a head injury. So this might include something like a concussion, a mild traumatic brain injury, or in substantial rates of speed, even higher rates of brain injury, something like a moderate to severe brain injury. This is particularly important if the person's been in a car accident where the airbags have gone off. We do know that concussions, generally speaking, will happen at higher G-forces than whiplash. So a lot of the time, the discussion around concussion is if there is a concussion, there's almost always a whiplash injury associated with it. However, whiplash injuries can happen independent of concussions. Why is it important that we would rule out a head injury? because so often the symptoms are so very similar and hard to tease out, particularly in the acute phase of the injury, let's say within the first seven days to maybe 14 days following the injury, as well as there's often comorbidities, which means there's an associated whiplash disorder and a concussion. So you're often co-managing both. A lot of the time, this takes time to tease out what symptoms are maybe caused by what injury. And why this is, is often the cervical spine physical exam and the concussion exam, because they cross over so much, will exacerbate symptoms. Now, this can include things like in the context of whiplash injury, you can still get eye strain, fogginess, irritability, a headache without having suffered a concussion. And a lot of the time, this is due to just a mismatch of information going into the brain through the cervical spine as a result of 
the fallout of the injury. This could also be related to psychosocial symptoms from something like a a low-grade post-traumatic stress disorder following a car accident because we know that often, and depending upon the accident, there's a lot of fallout with respect to that. So when people use sort of very specific terminology to say like this is caused by the whiplash and this is caused by the brain injury, as somebody that sees these injuries on a regular, regular basis, often I don't know a lot of the time what symptom is particularly related to what, especially if there is a comorbid condition where there is a brain injury and a whiplash injury at the same time. Now, are there a couple of things that might lead me to think one is more brain-driven versus neck-driven? There are a few circumstances. One is a convergence insufficiency outside of 10 centimeters. So what that means is if I have somebody track an object as I bring it towards their nose to kind of get them to see double and almost cross their eyes in towards their nose, if they see double outside of 10 centimeters, that may be an indicator. However, it's certainly not always. If the individual has a tension type headache, which is a bilateral pressing or pulsing headache in front of the ears or just above the eyes. However, again, not always the case. And then as well, if I'm doing a Buffalo concussion treadmill test, which I talked about around the topic of post-concussion exercise, if the individual has a pretty low heart rate where they get symptoms or they're complaining of exercise intolerance, So they're trying to go out and do some cardio and they're getting a whole host of symptoms during exercise. That might cause me to think that it may be more brain injury driven than neck driven. However, can I say this definitively? Uh, No, I can't. And and every circumstance is contextual and, and really, really different. So with whiplash injuries and the potential for the presence of brain injury being associated with whiplash injuries, how do we manage these? And it's really, really complex and complicated, as are many things in our, in our field. But I think one of the first and foremost things is educating the patient. The grade of the injury is going to vary patient to patient. But we do need to first respect that there is a physiological process that has to occur. So the nervous system, the soft tissue, the brain and the spinal cord, they all have to adapt. They have to heal And if I'm a manual therapist, I'm not going to affect that process by putting my hands on somebody. So we do have to educate patients that there will be some healing time that has to occur. And that's going to depend upon, again, the grade of the injury, the whiplash injury that was suffered. Often I do like to discuss the potential with the patient to have an active recovery process This is often difficult, especially in the acute phase, if the neck is quite sore and the patient just wants to rest. This is dependent upon the patient and whether or not they want to partake in it. The other thing that we want to make sure is that patients in the acute phase have good access to good quality care. Have they followed up with their family doctor? Have they gotten counseling resources put in place if they feel as though they need that? Have they gotten access to medication? Have they got access to physical therapy? and other means of managing their symptoms? And did they get a good thorough physical exam to rule out things like brain injury? Did they go to the ER immediately after in the context of something that has a mechanism of injury that's substantial? So if they were in a motor vehicle accident, 
Were they assessed in the emergency room? Do they have any of those red flags that I talked about earlier that might warrant an x-ray, something like hand numbness? And then maybe discussing how, in the context of this injury, can we maintain positive behaviors throughout the course of the day? So were they really, really active and now they're not? Can they do some of the exercises or some of their activities of daily living that they, they once did before the acute phase? Do we modify them? Do we take them out? These are some of the conversations that I like to have around the education piece, trying to take an active, active approach, making sure that there's good resources in place to ensure success right off the get-go. Secondly, I want to make sure that, and I mentioned it in terms of counseling, particularly if this was a substantial motor vehicle accident and the individual may or may not be off work at the same time. I always want to make sure that if individuals are off work or it was a substantial accident, they have the potential resources to get counseling if needed, particularly if this creates a resurgence in a mood disorder or a new mood disorder, referring them back to their family doctor to make sure that in the event that pharmacotherapy or medication is needed to manage mood, that they have access to that. Discussing things like, as I mentioned previously, exercise, and then making sure sleep is intact and all of these resources, again, are put in place. I'll often, um, with anyone that is letting me know that these symptoms are present, I'll provide them with a few counselors in my area that I know are well-versed in dealing with things like post-traumatic stress disorder or these particular circumstances of acute or persistent pain. Next is, and this probably comes after the education piece as well as making sure that all resources and psychological um, resources are put in place, is symptom management and looking at how we can best manage symptoms for the patient. In terms of treatment as a manual therapist, when I was in school, I always found that the treatments for whiplash were really, really aggressive. So you get in there with your hands and you'd often do techniques that were quite perceivably painful to the patient. You would try and establish or reestablish range of motion as sort of your primary goal. I could never really get behind it. I always found that those circumstances would be really, really painful for the patient, particularly after getting in a car accident. In terms of my treatment, my treatment for the neck and in general for the neck is really, really gentle if you were to look at it. I use things like low-grade joint mobilization in any particular direction just to make the patient feel good. I like to use techniques that I guess would be called like positional release techniques or just position of ease techniques might be a better term for them rather than release where I just place the neck in a position that feels good for the patient. I might apply a little bit of pressure to an area that they see as perceivably sensitive. I like to use things like low-grade traction that feels good, suboccipital release. Sometimes I won't even treat the neck if it's too painful. I'll just go to other areas of the body, face, head, hands, sometimes even feet, these areas that we know have really big representations in the brain and see if I can calm down the nervous system to allow symptoms of pain to calm down, symptoms of perceivable tone or tightness of the patient to calm down. 
And so that's what I do, just try to make the patient feel good, reduce their symptoms in the acute phase or the persistent phase if they're in that circumstance. And I don't know necessarily that the specificity of the techniques matter as much as we once thought they did, but that is my general approach to treatment. In terms of exercise, I do like to incorporate exercise wherever possible. I like to do things like just gentle range of motion in the acute phase. I like to make sure that I'm not only addressing the neck, but addressing the mid-back, low back, and hips often because these are a lot of the time forgotten about with cervical injuries in a motor vehicle accident. If the neck is injured at a high rate of speed, then there's the potential likelihood that the mid-back and the low back might also be injured in a high rate of speed. So for the first 7 to 14 days, I like to give just gentle range of motion of all of those segments, or if the patient isn't willing to partake in all those segments, maybe just the neck. These could be characterized as range of motion. They could also be characterized as mobility exercises, whatever you want to call them. It's just moving through gentle range of motion and monitoring your symptoms as you go. I've never really been one to give stretching for the neck, and this is just my experience in clinic. Following a whiplash injury, I find that if you're stretching and holding and attempting to quote-unquote push through your symptoms, it often leads to quite a bit of kickback pain and the patient being uncomfortable. Again, I don't really have any, a lot of evidence to support this claim. It's just what I found with my patients over the years, so I've shied away from stretching, and I prefer just using range of motion instead. And then I also like to give patients isometric exercises of the neck. We do know that isometrics are great in managing symptoms, particularly of pain. And so this might be just gently pushing into, let's say, a yoga block on the wall or gently pushing into their own hand in all of the ranges of motion that the cervical spine can do, which is side bending, bringing the ear to the shoulder in both directions, rotating or checking your blind spot in both directions, and then flexion and extension or bringing your chin to your chest or looking up towards the ceiling. And typically I'll have patients hold this in a really manageable manner. So I might say push with a force of say five out of 10, where 10 out of 10 is the maximum amount that you could push. And you could hold this anywhere from five to 45 seconds. And sometimes I'll give really specific guidelines like do this three times a day say five times 30 seconds. And other times I'll just say, do this when you feel like you need to. So whether that's 10 times a day once, just to try and manage your symptoms. And the whole goal of the isometrics for me is to just try and manage symptoms of discomfort and pain and then them just be aware of some of the, the symptoms that they're feeling as they create a little bit of low-grade force through all of those tissues that have been injured. Like I said, I, I opt for range of motion over stretching. I've just found for me personally, it's worked a little bit better. And then over time, you just want to gradually build that patient back up to pre-injury status. I almost feel like I can't even really comment on how I would do that because of the breadth of uh, whiplash injuries is so broad. Anything ranging from something really low grade and minor might only take one to two weeks to get back to pre-injury status. Whereas something more substantial with neurological findings may take months to years. There may also be no resolution of the injury and that patient might have some permanent potential symptoms or 
disabilities as a result of the injury that we may have to learn to manage. So in terms of long-term consequences of whiplash injury, again, they, they are highly variable depending upon what happened. The more persistent symptoms become, the more a full team approach is needed, and those biopsychosocial factors need to be addressed. This is preferably done in the acute phase with every injury, so patients have a better likelihood of not becoming persistent. It might involve more intervention from a medical standpoint. This might include things like medications or procedures like injections to manage pain in the neck or manage pain in the arm. And again, if there is a permanent disability or injury with no resolution, this could include something like spinal cord injury, which would be a whole other podcast topic. It might include something like the loss of use of an arm. I've had patients in those circumstances over the years, and this might require things like ongoing home care, ongoing modifications of activities of daily living, ongoing support at work, ongoing counseling. And the reality of it is, is that sometimes injuries or pain or symptoms don't resolve themselves. And when that happens, we need to be able to allow that person to live the most functional life that they can and give them tools to manage their symptoms the best way possible, as well as hopefully as practitioners, we can help them in a clinical setting manage some of their symptoms as well. So if you have any questions about specific circumstances, feel free to reach out. That might be a better way of approaching it. But I just think because of the the broad category of potential symptoms and host of symptoms, in terms of building a specific rehabilitation program to get somebody back, it's a little bit more difficult than something like a tendonitis or tendinosis in the knee. And while I know that in those episodes, I often talk about specific exercises I might give. Those, again, are always specific to the patient, so context is everything. Uh, My question for you this week is, have you suffered from a whiplash injury yourself? And if so, what are some of the things that you've done to help you get back to your pre-injury status? I'd love to know in the comments below. As always, folks, I hope that you found this episode to be of value to you. Have yourselves a great weekend, and we will see you in the next one.